Good to see you here. Uh, we are doing uh, a new thing, a little bit of a new thing this morning, and I just uh, uh, wondered if you knew what that was. Any ideas? What is that? Can't see. It's a photo. It is a photo of something, but that's not a photo. Um, that is the oldest postcard in history. Yes, it is. It was sent. It was mailed on the 14th of July, 1840. And it is actually a practical joke, in case you're wondering. Uh, the man who sent it, uh, is, uh, this is how he addressed it on the back here. Theodore Hook, Esquire. Uh, and uh, I think it's Fulbin, Fulbane, uh, in, uh, that's how he addressed it. So back in the day, in 1840, you didn't have to write all the stuff that we have to write today. Um, but he sent it, and uh, you can see the stamp in the top right there, he sent it uh, as a practical joke on the people who processed the mail because that's caricatures of the people who are processing the mail. So he sent it as a practical joke to to play a trick on them. It's worth $63,000. It was found in 2001 in like a a shoebox by someone. And um, yeah, I imagine they went to like Antiques Roadshow and were like, oh, this was worth $63,000. It's like 30,000 pounds or something. You're like, oh my goodness. Um, So why, why do I bring up postcards? Well, because I like receiving mail and letters and things like that. Um, but most of the books in our New Testament are actually letters, like Romans is Paul's letter to Roman, to the to the church in Rome. First and second Corinthians, all of that, you know, they're all letters. But today we are looking at really what could be considered a postcard. Okay? It's the book of Jude. And I don't know how how many of you ever read the book of Jude? It's a very small book right at the end of the New Testament. Uh, it's kind of overlooked. Uh, it's only 25 verses. It is the fifth shortest book in the Bible uh, by verse count. Um, so it's second and third John are less. Philemon is less. And uh, there's one more that I can't remember. But they, that one and Jude both have 25 verses. And it's a really good book. Really good. It's one, actually one of my favorite uh, books in the Bible, um, mainly because it doesn't take that long to read. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, and it was written by Jude. Now, who is Jude? I just think of, hey, Jude, you know, na, 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 na. Um, but it was written actually by Jesus' little brother, okay? And his name isn't actually Jude. Uh, in um, He identified in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. You can see there he's like the third born, fourth born technically, because Mary, uh, Jesus is the first one. So isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Now, there's a lot of Judases in the Bible, right? Because you had even in Jesus' 12 disciples, there's two Judases, right? And they always have to identify Judas, not the guy that betrayed him, and then Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. But it's actually, Judas is also um, a transliteration, I guess, of the Hebrew Judah, you know, so the tribe of Judah. So his name is actually Judah, but we've changed it twice. Once because there's too many Judases. Um, uh, once because Judah is, you know, the tribe of Judah. And second, because there's too many Judases. Um, so his name is Jude. And it's only 25 verses, and there's a lot packed in there. Okay, so we're going to have a look at um, that this morning. We're actually going to read the whole letter out loud 
this morning. And this is, I like doing this because this is how it would have happened in the church, right? Back when this letter was first written, it would have been sent to the church or the postcard, you know, on like a small piece of paper. And they would have got up and someone would have read it out and that would have been like the sermon. So I'm going to read the letter, then I'm going to sit down and we're going to finish. No, I'm just kidding. Then we're going to talk about it. Okay. So uh, we're going to read the book of Jude. You can turn there in your Bible. If you go to the back, Revelation, then back one, it's right there. Um, But all the verses are going to be on the screen. And imagine that this is a letter from Jude to us this morning, right? Imagine that you're receiving this as a letter to you, and it's being read out as if he'd sent it to us, all right? Now, I don't know, once we get through it, if you want to continue with that exercise once we read what's in it, but here we go. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, Although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Now, I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions as, and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people relying on their dreams defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts, as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. They are the wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts they have done in an ungodly way, and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. 
But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. No, so we don't know much about Jude at all. Uh, that depends. It depends because there's, um, this is a great answer. It depends because there's a, a strong relationship between Second Peter and Jude. So most commentaries bracket Second Peter and Jude together. And if you read Second Peter chapter 3, it's very similar to Jude. And so it depends because Peter was uh, executed around AD 65. So it depends whether Jude wrote first and Peter copied some of Jude's ideas then it would have to be written before AD 65. But it also depends whether Peter wrote first and then Jude copied some of his ideas and contextualized them to his situation. So, And there's no strong evidence either way. So it could have been written anywhere between AD 60 and AD 80. Yeah. No, we don't know very much about who he wrote to or where he was, um, which helps us to really absorb it for ourselves as well because then we're not going, oh, we have to keep in mind this particular situation. But I don't know if you guys can sense kind of Jude's urgency and his passion coming through in some of these things. And imagine if this was read out properly for us, if it had actually been sent to us, and he's saying that, Amongst the people sitting here listening to this are some people who are ungodly. I mean, he uses the word ungodly like five or six times in, in three verses that have come in by stealth and they're destined for wrath. And you imagine the awkwardness of sitting there and just looking going, well, is it you? I don't know. Is it me? Uh, who, who's he talking about? You know, or I know exactly who he's talking about. Um, <clears throat> there's this urgency there. And he gets right to the point, and he, you, you get this because in the ancient world, there was a formula for writing letters. You'd have the greeting, then you'd have what's called the thanksgiving, and then you'd have the body, and then you'd have the, the kind of farewell part where you'd, you'd greet people, and you know, so-and-so greets you, and so-and-so. And so Paul lists, in, in Romans, Paul lists 16 people who are with him who greet the church in Rome. Here... Uh, you see Jude finishes just with amen. He's like, amen, that's it. You know, just get on with it. And there's no thanksgiving. He's just like, Jude, a servant of Jesus, to you guys, straight into it. I was going to write to you about this and that. Uh, In Colossians um, chapter 1, Paul has an example of this. He says, we thank, you know, he says to the church in Colossae, uh, grace and peace to you. You know, Paul always like, grace and peace to you in the Lord Jesus. Then he's like, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And he, he kind of goes on with that. But Jude's straight in. And he's not writing the letter that he actually intended to write. He, uh, he's writing this letter. He says, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, so he was going to write this letter, this encouraging letter to build them up and say, look, this is great. This is what our salvation is. But instead, I found it necessary 
to write to you concerning um, this um, this issue. Compelled. The NIV translated, I felt compelled to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith. So what's he writing about? Well, one of my favorite games to play when I was growing up, I don't know if you guys ever played this game, but you'd get your your like your your jumper, your sweatshirt, and you'd put it over your head, but then you'd tie the hands behind your head and you'd have this like mask and you could create a mask like this and we would play ninja hide and seek. So everyone would be dressed up like that and then you would try and hide and so the the rule was so you had to sneak up on the person like a ninja and surprise them. But if they found if they saw you sneak up they could fight back, you know, so they ended up being, you know, young boys do. Ninja fights, a lot of ninja fights between me and my brother and, and my friends at school and stuff like this. And Jude is talking about spiritual ninjas, okay? He says, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write to you uh, to contend for the faith. For some people who are designated long ago for judgment have come in by stealth. They have snuck in, and he's really worried that they're messing up the church. And he's really worried that no one else is really worried about it. Because they've snuck in. We had a cat once. Uh, this is like 14 years ago now. And she uh, used to sleep on the bed with us at night. But she wasn't content to sleep on top of the covers down by our feet. She would want to sleep under the covers where it was like extra warm right next to us. And we were always like, no, 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 you can't do that. So what she would do is she would wait till we were mostly asleep. And she would creep up to the top of the covers. And like she would just... One paw would just, you'd just feel it come in under the covers. And then when she felt like she got that one in far enough, the next one would come in. And then the head would come in. And then when she got in, she felt like she was in far enough. She would just go and try and get her whole self in. And, um, and you'd just be like, oh, you'd wake up. And you'd, no, get out, get out, get out. And so sometimes she did it really well. And you'd wake up in the middle of the night. You rolled over on her and she'd, and you're like, oh, no, I'm back. You know, how did I... How did I get those claws in there? But this is what these people have done, right? They've kind of just like crept in. Like, anyone watching? No, no, okay, I'm in here. And, um, and they're good at what they do, so they're not easily detected. So Jude, he's rebuking them, and he calls them these others. In some translations, he, call, he refers to them as these others. He doesn't even dignify them with like a name. He's like, some, some others have crept in. And, uh, and he exhorts us to do is to um, encourage us to contend. And that word contend is like to wrestle, like it's Olympic wrestling, you know, when you like really, especially in the Greco-Roman times, they would like wrestle in the mud and get dirty and that, that sort of wrestling, like contending for the faith. And he identifies two ways in which these others are um, take, uh, taking people away from the faith. And I love the way that the ESV puts it. Um, he says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for the condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So there's two things in there. The first thing that they do is they pervert or twist the grace of God. And so what another way of saying this is that they are living out of this idea of cheap grace. Now, I've, I've talked about cheap grace before, cheap grace, not chief grace, cheap grace before, and you'll know where it's from. My, my favorite theologian, can anyone remember who he is? 
There we go. Thank you. Very good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the man who wrote um, this famous book called The Cost of Discipleship. In German, the title is just Nachfolge, which is following, which is the, the theme of the whole book is following Jesus. It's a response to Jesus' call to follow me. But the first line in that book is, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. <laughs> wow, way to start. You know, it's like laying it down there. Um, and this chapter, chapter one in his book, is called Cheap Grace versus Costly Grace. And uh, if I could, I would read the whole chapter to you because it just expands all of this very beautifully. But I'm going to quote it extensively to give you an idea of what this, uh, this kind of perverting the grace of God into sensuality is all about. So here we go. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, The essence of grace, this is, he's discussing cheap grace. So he's being sarcastic when he says this, okay, just so you know in context. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Imagine if you go into a store and they give you store credit for a million dollars, and you're just like, oh, great, I'll take this, I'll take this, I'll take this. Or you get, um, you know, they have those, those games where people fill a trolley as fast as they can in a minute. They rush through the store. This is how he's saying we think that of God's grace, like God's paid everything so I can have everything for nothing, right? That's what he's talking about, okay? Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite, what would, be, what would grace be if it were not cheap? Okay? Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. So do you understand that? He's saying like you say, well, I have God's grace, so I can do whatever I want. I'm justifying the action, but in myself, I'm still the same. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. The Christian knows he must not strive against this indispensable grace. Therefore, let him live like the rest of the world. And I'm saying he's being sarcastic here, just in case you were wondering. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So the idea, these people are saying that God's grace covers everything, every action. And to, to an extent it does, but they say because God's grace changes, it covers everything, I don't need to change the way that I am. The account is always in credit, so I'm good. I've got the store credit, so I can just get whatever I want and not worry about it. Tom Wright, our N.T. Wright, the theologian, puts it like this. And uh, find people who today are saying that God loves everyone exactly as they are, so everyone must stay exactly as they are, doing all the things they want to do because God is so full of generosity that he obviously wants them to do that. Find such people, and you found those to whom Judah is writing. Okay, He calls him Judah. That's his name. So Tom writes like that. He's particular. So we need to ask ourselves this question. We need to turn this question kind of onto ourselves. Are we cheapening the grace of Jesus in our lives? Do we expect that we'll get a free pass? Do we forget that when Jesus encountered the woman caught in adultery in John 8, he said to her to go and sin no more? 
And there's these verses. Paul dealt with this. I mean, this is the sort of thing that is as old as, as time. I mean, you've got Paul dealing with it. You've got Jude dealing with it. You've got Bonhoeffer dealing with it. And even to some extent today, we have this idea. Um, in, in Tom Wright's uh, words, you know, everyone must stay exactly as they are because God wants everyone to be exactly as they are. That idea is, is out there. And here's Paul dealing with it. In Romans 6, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Because the whole argument that these people have is that, well, grace is, God's grace covers my sin. And so uh, if I want more grace, then I should sin more. And so they use it. This is the same sort of thing. They're perverting God's grace into an, an, um, a reason to do whatever they want, to sin. And Paul says, absolutely not. So they're like, I get more grace if I sin more, so that's good. So I should do more sin so I get more grace. He said, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that just that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. That's the idea here. Right? You encounter Jesus, you encounter his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his Holy Spirit, and you walk in newness of life. And so coming back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he contrasts cheap grace with costly grace. And this is how he, he describes costly grace. Costly grace is costly because it costs a man his life. And this is the whole point of his book uh, when he says, follow me. He's, he expounds on that, and he says, this is what Jesus asks us to do, to lay down everything and to follow him. And he used the example of Levi in the tax booth in the middle of the working day, and Jesus walks up to him while he's sitting in his tax booth at his work and says, follow me. And immediately, Levi just walks out of the office and just goes and follows him and leaves everything behind. And that's what he is talking about. It costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. So everything that you think is important when you encounter Jesus turns out to not be important, and you give it up to follow him. And he talks about um, it. costly grace is the pearl in the field that the person finds, the merchant finds, sorry, the per- pearl in the market that the merchant finds, and he goes and he sells everything that he has so he can buy it because compared to that, everything else is worthless, or it's the treasure hidden in the field that when you find it, you go and sell everything that you have to buy that field so you can have that treasure. That's what that grace is. It costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Then he quotes, you were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. And we forget that, right? When we, when we uh, talk about grace, we forget that it cost Jesus his whole life. We forget that. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. So we cannot cheapen the grace of God because we are... Uh, essentially um, rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus. It leads to the second thing that they do. Uh, These people deny that Jesus is Lord, because if you don't believe that God's grace is costly, that it cost him the life of his son, then 
why would you serve that God? Tom Wright puts it like this. Find people who today are saying that Jesus is one religious teacher among others or one way of salvation among others, that there might well be a variety of paths up the mountain of which Jesus' path is only one, that it's important not to make exclusive claims or will become arrogant. Find such people and you've found those of whom Judah is writing. Right? We just spent eight weeks looking at the claims that Jesus made about himself. And one of the central claims that he made, what was the foundational claim? Before Abraham was, I am. He is the Lord. He is the ultimate. He is God. He is the I am. And when we talk about Lord, they deny the lordship of Jesus. In the ancient world, Lord had massive connotations. Um, In the ancient world, if you were a good citizen, you would confess that Caesar is Lord. That was your confession. And Lord meant ultimate authority, the one that you would bow the knee to, that you would obey no matter what. You know, like Caesar comes up and says, everyone must chop off their left arm. You're like, okay, you know, that's it, got to do it. Um, That was what a faithful citizen of Rome would do. But to be a faithful Christian meant to say, no, Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, Jesus is Lord. It's what Paul writes in Romans. That's why, you know, so many people love Romans because there's so much to quote from it. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Kyrios Iesus. Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What does it mean when you say Jesus is Lord? Jesus tells us three times. This is just one of them. He said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. That is to say no to your own self as Lord. Take up his cross daily and follow me. But because these people were using the grace of God to do whatever they wanted, not whatever Jesus wanted, so they turned God's grace into a way to an excuse to do whatever they wanted, then clearly Jesus is not Lord for them. They are their own Lord, and that's what it comes down to. It all goes back to the garden, right? That impulse to follow the temptation of the serpent. You can trace most of the problems in the world back to that one thing where The serpent said, no, you will certainly not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's what is behind all of this. In the end, that's what Jude is contrasting here. Two different people in two different relationships with Jesus. There are those two groups. There are those who who are kept by God. That's what he says At the very start, he says, to those who are kept by God, beloved of God and kept by for Jesus Christ. And there are those who have rejected the authority of God. And so I'm going to finish with a quote from my other favorite theologian, who is Pauline knows. Very good. Yes. He writes in The Great Divorce, he says, uh, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom, in the end, God says, thy will be done. And so as we come to think and reflect here, um, we are the recipients of God's grace, the costly grace of Jesus Christ that cost him his whole life. Um, I remember uh, watching a, a clip from a sermon 
and it was a, an Easter sermon, and the pastor was saying to the congregation, imagine if Jesus was like a lot of people are today, and he was carrying his cross, and all of a sudden he just got fed up with it halfway up the road, and he's like, no, I'm done. You guys, are, you guys don't even care about this. You know, you're, you're, you're not even understanding what I'm doing here for you. And he just put it down. He just walked away. Imagine if Jesus was like that, he said. What would that be like? And I think, man, God's grace that Jesus went through all of that for us. It was costly. And we can't spit on that. We can't go, nah, look, just whatever. I'm going to do whatever I want because Jesus' death. Like, Jesus did that because he loves us. We are the recipients of that grace. And so we need to honor that. Do we confess with our very lives? Because, I mean, that's what it comes down to in the end as well. These people were, Jude doesn't mention a single thing about their theology. He doesn't say they're teaching this and they're teaching that. Like in, in Colossians, Paul is writing against people who are teaching that you have to also obey the, all the laws, especially the circumcision law in order to be saved. So it's Jesus plus the law. But in the end, Jude doesn't, doesn't do that. He just says, look at their lives. That's how you know. That's how they testify about themselves that they are twisting the grace of God and they are rejecting the authority of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so do our lives confess that Jesus is Lord or are they confessing something else? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your grace. We are so grateful for what that means for us, that you went through, that you suffered on the cross that you paid the price so that we could be in relationship with you, so that we could know you, so that we could experience your the fullness of the life that you offer us. And we just want to lay ourselves down now and just say, Lord, you are truly Lord. If there is any place, part in our lives that uh, needs to be handed over to you, Lord, we want to do that now. I pray that you would speak to us and convict us of that in this moment as we reflect and as we worship and we sing to you. So, Lord, um, speak to us, enlighten our hearts as we worship and sing and adore and love you, Lord. Call us and conform us to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.